Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called What's the Story with Ballymore? Ballymore being the rural Irish village, not to be confused with Ballamory, the fictional Scottish island community from the children's TV show. But there is plenty of chat about community in this episode. In Irish, the word ord, O-R-D, means both religious community and sledgehammer. Talking of religion, the Spanish village of Trasmoth, sorry, that's terrible pronunciation, my daughter's studying Spanish. She won't be impressed. Trasmoth was excommunicated and cursed in 1511 by the Pope for witchcraft. It's spelt T-R-A-S-M-O-Z. You might be forgiven for not knowing that. Neither the curse nor the excommunication has ever been lifted, and each year the village crowns the woman who has best served the community, which of their year. How very modern. According to Robert Baden-Powell, bees are quite a model community, for they respect their queen and kill their unemployed. A bit like Boris Johnson. The Danish town of Brundbyhavby has its allotments arranged in circles to encourage a sense of community and interaction between neighbours. It's actually a very lovely thing. I'm going to put a picture of it in the show notes. You'll also be able to see how to spell the name of the town. And back in the UK, a group of thieves was made to do community service, tending to the gardens along a road in Rotherham. The next spring, when the daffodils came out, their blooms beautifully spelled the words shag and bollocks. I'm literally in a laundry cupboard. Can you see my washing? Oh, beautiful. Wow. Are they hanging to dry? That's my guest today, Alison Spittle. An Estonian community of 5,000 people, following an online vote, adopted the cannabis leaf as their town's emblem. The chairman of the town council hailed it as a very democratic process. And when did democracy ever let any of us down? I'm in my bedroom, come dining room, come everything. <laughs> it's all here. Alison Spittle is a writer, comedian and actor who grew up in the Irish village of Ballymore. She got into stand-up when she was just 20 years old after volunteering at her local radio station and she quickly caught the eye of talent spotters and TV executives. By 27, she was starring in a sitcom she had written herself, Nowhere Fast, a comedy about women in rural Ireland, with Alison playing the lead role Angela, a woman forced to return to her family home after suffering a career disaster. Alison herself has since moved from Ireland to the UK, where as well as being a sought-after comedian, she's built up a reputation as one of the best writers in the business. And she also co-hosts the brilliant BBC podcast, Wheel of Misfortune, with Fern Brady. Now, just a very quick technical disclaimer before we kick off the interview. I did forget to hook up my USB mic for about the first, I don't know, 15 minutes of the podcast. So it isn't that I'm broadcasting from a nuclear bunker, just that I'm a moron. Alison and I talked about COVID, comedy, radio, sex ambivalence, mental health, belonging, bullying, Morrissey, mum love, community, women, weight and bullying. But we started by talking about age.
And I kept getting praise off people for being young and doing stuff. And like, it's not even uh, that praise is so false because it goes. And then you're like, I'm not different to where I was five years ago. I'm just not an age that you can go, ooh, that's it. You know, it's not, there's nothing, there's nothing different about me, nor about you. It's ridiculous. I hate it. And I see it. Do you see these nights where they'll go, young people? And it's just like, who gives a, who specifically goes to a comedy club to watch the opinions of a 22 year old? Who does it? Because if they need to, be on a register for something because that's weird. <laughs> that's odd. That's how I feel. So, how did you meet your boyfriend? I met him in uh, the well, we first started chatting in the smoking area of a pub. We were introduced by another comedian, and then I met him uh, doing a very, very early podcast like podcasts. I hadn't heard of a podcast before I was a guest on the podcast. This is about eight, eight years ago, nine years ago. Uh, before really every fucker had a podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was the film reviewer on this podcast and I was a guest on it. And uh, yeah, we met through that. But we were like, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not really, uh, I wasn't really a person that went out with people before or anything like that. Because yeah, I've heard uh, you talk about that, that. That's something that's kind of your stick, right? Is is you have a certain kind of view. So it's not so the stuff you say on stage is a bit of a departure from what's going on in a way. I think I think maybe because I was doing comedy before I met my boyfriend. Yeah. And like that was definitely my persona then. And then you're writing stuff in that in that kind of mindset. And it's not I don't know about you and you're writing stuff, but I probably write with the most extreme version of me yep. possible. And also, like, it's uh, it's hard because, like, I, I've, I've described myself as, like, not sex positive, not sex negative, but sex ambivalent. Yes, like, I've heard you I talk was... about that. So what's that about then, sex ambivalence? Because that's not one of the extremes, right? No, no. But it's like I used to be, I don't know, I used to be, like, highly Catholic, highly guarded, just, like, just like I kind of saw how my friends were being hurt and stuff when I was a teenager and it just did not interest me in any way, uh, boys in, in any kind of way. And uh, I just never, I just never kind of like, uh, I never explored that. Explored makes me want to vomit in my own mouth. But like, uh, <laughs> I just didn't give, I didn't give lads the time of day. They weren't a thing that I was interested in at all. And uh, yeah, so when I started doing comedy, I, I mean, I was just, I was 19. Was I 19? I was very, I was in college. So I like. You did I, it through working because you had a patch. So you were working in radio, right? And you got into it via radio. Yeah, I was doing work experience at a radio station. And the guy who, uh, so the, there was two presenters of this. I went into this um, radio station as a person doing work experience. And one of the days uh, I had to sit and shadow a DJ. So we'd be chatting in between uh, when songs were on and he was, we were just chatting and, he, and we were chatting about soaps. And then he said, do you want to come on air and talk about soaps in the next segment? I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. So we did this thing where we were talking about like my favorite character in soaps are like, um, 
the the pubescent people that replace children when they go away for a summer oh yeah kind of thing because i feel like a child will as soon as like there's a bit a whiff of a mustache or any kind of awkward uh puberty they go and then they get replaced by like a, a six pack or something like that yeah i've worked house. at nickelodeon for years i've seen this happen on the inside Alison. oh my god <laughs> the stories i could tell so I feel like soaps is genuinely like like some sort of like there's a nuclear power plant leak where where children <laughs> turn into grown men in a matter of a month uh, where they go away to Canada or something. So I was chatting about that. And then the guy who did the breakfast show uh, called in when a song was on and said, could you come in earlier tomorrow and do the breakfast show with us? And I was like, yeah. So then they said, are you off? college um any of the days and I was always off on a Friday so I used to go in then every Friday and and you went to college in Dublin right so you could get into the studio easily as opposed to being in your hometown or where were you living at the time I was in college in Dublin but the the radio station was a half an hour away from my village so my mum would drop Ah, me off she was very supportive and very good like if I didn't have that I don't think I would have been able to pursue radio but I did that and then um the guy who the guy who did the breakfast show is a DJ is a is a stand up comedian and one of the challenges on air one time was to try stand up comedy, so I did it and then that was just I loved it from then on, and I wanted. What was to it do like? That. What did it feel like the first time you did it? So you were nineteen when you did your first gig. I think maybe I was maybe thinking about it now because it was August. I would have been twenty, so I was born in June. So, so really like ancient. Freshly. You were twenty by then. <laughs> yes, and um, and how did it feel? It felt incredible because I felt very well. I felt very scared at first um, because it wasn't something I wanted to do. I had no interest in doing stand up comedy. I hadn't seen stand up comedy because I live in a rural part of Ireland. It wasn't like a a thing I would pursue nor care about. I watched um, Eddie Murphy raw i think that was the only stand-up special that i'd watched and i then watched uh, live in the apollo to prepare for it with my mom because i was like i better try this so then like are you uh, close to your mom was your mom being supportive of you with all of this oh my mom is super my mom is yeah 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 i'm, I'm like very close to my mom like um yeah she's an absolute legend like also most of my stand-up what is about her uh because she's such a strong uh personality i get on very well with my mom most of my stand-up is about her and i feel bad about that um because i don't want it there's a big kind of irish stereotype about irish mums mums are a massive part of the national psyche i would say like Mm -hmm. um they are they are a big big uh they're a big cultural figure in Ireland and my mom is just like um super kind of how would you say eccentric is not a right word because it's not she's not different to anybody but she's just very like she's kind of extreme in the sense of like Irish femininity and just like I don't know we we would smoke fags together like I'm the eldest and like uh, my mum and dad separated when I was about like 14. And your dad's English. Yeah. So yeah how is that for your sense of self? That must be a weird thing. It is very odd because I was born in London and um, I moved over. I mean, and I mean, I do a lot of stand up about this as well. It's hard when you do stand up about your life yes. and then you're talking about your life. <laughs> and I don't want to like, I don't know about you, but do you know when you talk to some comedians and you're, you're going to talk into some territory that might, 
be stuff that you talk about on stage and there's something about talking to other comedians where you're like I really don't want you to think that I am trying out material on you or um, this is a bit or because yeah, I feel yeah. that's like that's the worst thing you can yes. do even though like we're it's talking a on a podcast trick. yeah <laughs> and it's like it's very it's very uh, it's very odd but like uh, yeah my dad is English and I moved over to Ireland and I feel that I wasn't accepted for a long time because of my accent. So I changed my accent around. So you had an English accent, ended up in Ireland and having to reassimilate with an Irish accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah reassimilate. And also like um, it was just it was an odd kind of time because my dad, my dad uh, is a builder and he had a car crash and he was in a wheelchair for a couple of years. So we were kind of like financially very like you know unstable from what we were before I moved into this estate and it was kind of like I I I think for the first like six years of my life was a middle class child as in like I had stuff from the early learning center I had an accent I had like uh, they were all they, they would go like oh she can read at like three years old and I was always three and I was the only child for a long time until uh-huh. my little sister came along so I was like this little posh girl I think or maybe it's because when I moved to that state I was told I was posh or whatever uh-huh. but then like I had to like uh, make a decision about like do I want friends or do I want to be myself and then like <laughs> you you just kind of like uh I changed myself, I think, and I observed a lot and I just wanted to make myself like and it's also I moved around a lot when I was a kid. My dad like we lived in Germany, when we lived in different parts of Ireland. Um like I I would go I there was I went to so many schools when I was a kid. So I was always a new kid and you're always kind of like it's almost like Groundhog Day, where you can see where there's a mistake that you made in that school. So you're not going to make that mistake again. And you're going to also try and skip to a part where you can make friends quicker because it was just like, I don't have enough time to be your acquaintance. I need a friendship now because I'll be gone in a few months. Kind of Was thing. that quite conscious then? It sounds like even as a little girl, you were having to really think about doing that. So you were, I, I heard you describe yourself on um, as a blow in and that you were always trying yes. to kind of work out. Yeah. So the impact and the characters you write about, because um, you ended up a, a young woman in rural Ireland and you write about women in rural yeah. Ireland. That seems to be a, and do you think that's because your identity as a woman in rural Ireland is kind of hard one then? You had to fight quite hard to know who you even were definitely and then when I moved it's strange um because when I lived in um I I would move I would go to England to do summer jobs when I was a teenager because when um because you know my dad lived there and it was handier and there was just like no jobs to get in rural Ireland so I'd go over to England to work and then people would go you're Irish and then I'd move over here and they would tell me I'm English and uh and the other thing is like in my village, like I, I love my village now. I've I had some issues when I was younger, but like it was a big thing of like if you moved from a different town, you were a blow in. It didn't even matter to be from a different country. It was about being from that village. And what, and what, what is the village? village? Ballymore, it's called. Yeah. It's cool. It's got its own Wikipedia page. And I'm on the Wikipedia page. Ah, that's amazing. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> and is it Ballymore? Because so, when you talked about one of the, um, when, when I heard you talking about the Midlands, of course, being an English person, first of all, yes. I know we're moronic. And anyway, you say you're from an Ireland. We're like, is that near Dublin? Uh, so that's the, <laughs> that's the standard question. But also, of course, I thought the Midlands, I was thinking the Midlands in England. But the Midlands, yeah. so, so 
the place you you're from a really properly rural spot right like what what's in the Ballymore what what's actually in Ballymore in terms of um, facilities and, and like a shop or a pub or whatever how big is it there was a there's a shop there used to be two shops like because Ireland was in quite a good place economically when I was a teenager so when I was a teenager there was two shops so that's like 20 was, years ago yeah yeah. So, yeah 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 around that time and like um and then there was two shops and there was about four pubs and now there are two pubs and one shop and the petrol station is closed so that's gone so it's Post a office it's, there was a post office. We lost it, unfortunately. I signed a petition to keep it. but uh, And also, uh, we voted uh, for gay marriage in, in the referendum. And uh, the village down the road from me voted no. And oh, they lost wow. their post office. And I felt that was connected. And I did feel quite smug Absolutely, about us keeping sure. our post office. But now it's gone. So yeah. it's unfortunate. There, there was a, a record. I, I, there was a recording studio in the village next to mine. And uh, Michael Jackson recorded there. Oh. And uh, we were always convinced that we could see any nice car that passed our village. We'd be like, that's Michael Jackson. Or once there was, was a hot this air before balloon. everyone knew what Michael Jackson was really like? Was this when, like, when Michael Jackson was a purely a good thing? Um, I think it might have been. It was definitely on the cusp. On the cusp, I'd say. I'd yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah, on the cusp. And it was like, a, I, knew, I knew a person that um, cle- like made the beds at that place. And we would ask her, like, what does he eat for breakfast? And she was like, porridge. And we're like, oh, my God. Yeah. But um, it's funny when you look, because I was brought up in very rural Dorset, like not even near, a, not even near, a, not near anywhere. Like we're literally in the middle of nowhere, not even near a shop, not walking distance to anywhere. And it's really funny how differently you see like I couldn't believe it when I would come up to London and I remember seeing Nicholas Lindhurst you know who was in Only Fools and Horses and I saw Nicholas Lindhurst like in a pizza place like having a pizza I wasn't even in the pizza place like I think I was on the school bus and we saw him like as we went by and then I saw Scylla Black one time in the back of a Rolls Royce uh, when we were again we were still in the school bus these weren't the same trip that would have blown my (laughs) tiny mind this was over a period of like three years accumulated and I remember thinking oh my god you could live in a place where like you would see famous people and it was so different where I grew up and I was wondering because I always felt like I didn't really know who I was or where I fitted in and part of that was because I wasn't in a bigger social world where you could understand where there were lots of points of reference and you'd be like there's a whole load of different people in my school so we can all work out our tribe I was in really small schools I was like you have to this is the tribe you fit in with this place or you don't you don't belong anywhere and and for me when I got into stand-up which was almost the same age as you 45 when I did my first gig (laughs) and um but I don't know about you but one of the things that struck me with you and what you're describing as your radio, your first experience. So somehow you, you do have a really distinctive voice and, and that it's it's totally unique. And it sounds like the reason you got the airtime was because they heard you talking and they were like, we love this shit. No one's saying this. So, yeah. so if you had to work so hard to know who you even were, where does you having such a clear own voice come from then? Because you might think those two things would be quite contradictory. I think I think it comes from a like a decision you make uh I so in my estate like I look my mum still lives there I have a great I I say this with love and I have a great time there and I blah 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 just if you're listening from my village like you know these are my feelings and like I'm allowed to have them and stuff but and I'll you know um I think that there was a a decision that I made 
uh, to kind of opt out of worrying whether I was pretty enough or if boys would like me or um, any kind of like social mobility thing. I think I went just as um, because like my estate, like uh, it's quite it was quite like violent and stuff like girls and boys would fight with each other. There wouldn't be any there was there was no chivalry in regards to like, you know, you'd get a punch in the face kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it kind of like the society. That's equality, right? Face. No one. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they were just feminists. But like, yeah. And I say this is there was a lad who used to like beat me up on the regular until one time he was sitting down. And he slagged off my mum's hair. He called it like I said that she toilet duck in her hair. It was a beautiful head of highlights, Callie. It was a beautiful. <laughs> there was no. There was no toilet down, duck we all toilet ducked our hair. Yeah, we? it was the it was the early two thousands. But I jumped on him. <laughs> I jumped on him. He was sitting down. And he didn't. I don't. I think he didn't think that I would hit him. And I jumped on him and I started gouging his eyes. I mean, never ever like it was just I kind of found out as well that if you stood up to people and if you kind of said you didn't care about their if you didn't care about what they cared about you couldn't get hurt so I used to listen to Morrissey and wear like mad tights and people would accept me because uh the only because it was because geographically it was so small that the, the girls my age would hang out with me because we'd no one else to hang out with. And we'd all just smoke Benson and Hedges. And I would go on about Morrissey all the time and it would be fine. Was it was before like Morrissey a, became a full wanker. Absolutely. But like, you know, like truthfully, Gally, he was a wanker before. I think we all I kind think, of knew he was a wanker, but it, he yeah. didn't wear it on his sleeve in a way that was so unignorable, right? He, and, it's hard to support him now with some of the shit. Oh, says, it's so. disgusting. Yeah. It's what annoys me as well. It's like, definitely, if, if people knew me from back then, my whole identity was on him. Yeah. Like, all the people, money you spent on the t shirts and the vinyl. Yeah. The, everything like uh, uh, there was a rumor going around school that I was a witch because I had so many pictures of Marcy they thought it was a, like a shrine like it went up over my ceiling it was just mad I was a mad piece of a shirt he used to throw a shirt into the crowd and I would like pull on I would like get it with my teeth and like have a piece of a sleeve so um, when he when he started coming out as an absolute wanker how did that feel to you then that must have been like the worst breakup ever well, it was, and it it was like, yeah, it was. But it was also I was at a different stage in my life as well, where uh, I remember listening. To, I was listening to a Smiths album and having a shower, and I had to switch it off because I was like, I don't need to start my day by listening to a song about child abuse. Yeah. Like you know, this isn't gonna. Which is a good life mantra, right? No yeah, one needs to start it? their day like that. I think <laughs> no this one... is one thing we teach people on this podcast is that's no good start to a day. No, I think I think genuinely a good start to your day is like a bit of prefab sprout. You know, you can't yeah, go wrong. You can't go wrong with prefab sprout. But and do no. you? So, so in terms of that voice that you have, because you, I always wonder what it must be like having got into stand up at the opposite poles, right? So yeah. in some ways I felt like getting into it later, it did have a bit of a sense of who I was, but the sense of who I am has changed a lot since I've started doing stand up. And weirdly, this late stage, not late stage in my life, this mid stage in my life, I'm still working out who I am because I kind of hid it to have a corporate career and do the other stuff I did. But yeah. you came straight out the gates with your own voice so that's how you kind of got noticed that's how you got airtime that's why you ended up being a stand-up yeah and and it really comes through in your work and I'm massively in awe of of how you how you know that and the kind of 
confidence makes you sound like a dick and I, I don't think it comes across in that way at all it, it's but this sense of um being somebody that the world doesn't hear elsewhere I, I'm really envious of your capacity to do that so do, and, and and you write a lot right do you see yourself as a writer or a comedian what's your core thing yeah I see myself as like whatever I'm getting paid for at the time yeah that's a very <laughs> yeah that's very <right>. well, <laughs> the thing um you're I I think the thing maybe that I regret about I don't know about life generally is I've spent my whole like adult life um looking for validation in ways that like it's not it's not good I think the lockdown has kind of taught me that like I don't know like when the lockdown happened my whole identity as a comedian kind of went because there was no gigs and stuff like that. And, and how, also, you came out the gates very quickly with your co-video party. So you were very quick to come up with content in the lockdown, like you were among the first. And was yeah. that, did that come out of a kind of existential crisis then? Or, or how were you feeling at the time? Yeah, it came out of that. I think, I think it also, I think genuinely I was looking forward to going to the cinema that week. Yeah. And I missed the, I like chatting about, I like, I like chatting in the queue for your popcorn to chat about your expectations for the film and then after about the film itself and then I think I put up a poll to say does anyone want to watch a film together because I was just all my gigs were cancelled and shit and then people we did it we watched Clueless and then people said do you want to do this tomorrow and I was like there's nothing else I'm gonna do this is co-watching so you're putting a poll up on Twitter and then people can all watch independently but kind of as a Twitter community yeah at the same time so you press play at nine o'clock I'm gonna bring it back uh because I love you to bring it back because I think we're all kind of lonely in a different way now and everyone's Mm. mental health is a bit fucked at the moment I think we all need a bit more community my mental health got more fucked from stuff opening up again than it did closing I think a lot of people have had that yeah and it's just like and I think uh I just hated comparing myself to other people when when shit was happening I think I know this sounds terrible but like and I think a lot of people felt this way but one good thing about the lockdown was that I couldn't compare myself to other people because Mm -hmm. it was everything had stopped Mm -hmm. so So nobody it's not like we were losing out to other people because no one was getting anything yeah Yeah. it's not weird how I felt good about that that I did I was like I might not be getting it but I don't want you to get it you bastard yeah Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't speak highly no one's getting the Apollo this year (laughs) no Apollo now I feel fine about not getting it (laughs) yeah 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 it's the only but like uh, and I still and it's it's weird because sometimes when I do interviews um and we talk about stuff I feel like I'm never really being truthful because I'm very kind of honest about my mental health and that comes from a young person's thing of because uh, I've been I've been getting psychiatric help since I was like 13 I had a bit of a breakdown when I was 13 and I had to go I had to miss two classes a week to go get help mm-hmm. So your friends be going like, or your classmates be going, where are you going? I'm like, well, I have to go see this person and that person. And it didn't occur to me that that was something to be hidden because it was just somewhere I was going. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have a sense of shame about it uh, that like I've talked to other people and and they have felt that kind of thing. So like it's just been uh, something that I've been used to. But the the conversation I have sometimes with people about mental health is uh they'll say and what did you do to cure that 
or they won't say it in that way, mm-hmm. but that's kind of what they're implying, mm-hmm. and which is fine because you want and you want like you want an ending to a story and stuff like that. And I do bullshit and I go, oh, meditation, because I've tried it about twice or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, it's That's just twice like... more than most people who say they meditate. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always like, it's it's not a good conversation to have where you're like, well, actually, I'm still feeling a bit mental or whatever. It's just... Uh, do you think it's that's some it's interesting because we all talk about mental health and that's part of the reason I did the podcast was because I've struggled with mm. mental health but I also have a kind of um a sort of I have I have mixed views about it like on the one hand I feel really sincere about it and I've fought hard to be okay and in other hand and other ways I think it's I laugh at myself for it and it's a mixed thing right but I think the idea that people are you're, the idea that you're aiming to be happy like people are going are you happy it's kind of like yeah. well that's a hell of a place to aim to be I don't know if that's the aim or whether it's about letting that bit of yourself come with you so the bit that needs the psychiatric help and it has a place within all the other stuff you do and it, it doesn't have to derail the whole train but it sometimes some days it might do but it yeah. can just live there as part of all the other bits of you the bit that's funny the bit that's glossy the bit everyone finds easy to be with they're all part of you right yeah it's like having hard foot skin or yeah. something yeah, yeah you have to Which maintain I also that have. mental I ill health and hard foot skin it's a, yeah. no wonder I struggle dating <laughs> it's kind of like maintaining that and stuff and like you know it's a part of you and you want to keep an eye on it and keep it down but you're probably never gonna cure that you're never gonna you're never gonna get an uh a, a, an operation that stops you from having hard foot skin like it's always just going to be there and you just have to scrape away at it so it doesn't overtake your flip-flops i did stand up comedy because i fell in love with the feeling of doing it and i loved it and it wasn't what was that you were telling me about that so that feeling when you first did it when you were 20 and you got on the stage what was that feeling it was a feeling of like Oh, it was just adrenaline. My heart was beating so hard and I felt like I was doing a bungee jump or something or like jumping out of a plane and I landed safely. Like no one died. Like if I look back at the gig, it was probably shite, but I felt that I'd done well (laughs) considering like that, uh, you know, I had two weeks and it's the right stuff. And and, um, also there's this feeling of like when you're doing stand-up, it's not necessarily power because that's like a a more active word that I'm looking for but it's like comfort I don't know I was talking to someone about this the other day because he said that I should learn how to stand on stage that I don't that I give the impression that I'm nervous about stuff and like I I he said you fidget a lot on stage is that about status then that you need to get the status that you have the room yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think like I'm not used to being high status. I'm used to like taking myself out of the status thing altogether. Yes. By just being so like mad that I didn't care. You know, it was just a definite protective thing. I think I did stand up about this before. About I wear really bright clothes. Like a bug in the Amazon is really bright because you know, nature to make stuff bright to say like I'm poison mm-hmm. and I'm dressing like this to go, I am mentally ill and you don't know what way I'm going to go. So mm-hmm. like, you know, approach me with caution type mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And like, um, yeah, I don't know. With stand up, um, I just, I just really like making people laugh. It makes me feel good. And it was something that I tried to do when I was young and stuff like that. 
um I also kind of noticed that I laugh at my own jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's useful know. in lockdown when that was the only audience we had. I know. <laughs> if you weren't laughing, then how but, the hell did you know? <laughs> when I, you know, when you tell people a funny story, if you look at people telling a funny story that are stand ups are in a pub and they'll go like, get this right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then yeah. they tell them it. So you know that you have to laugh and it's great. And, uh, I don't know. Like I found, uh, what were we talking about before this bit? Well, about your because if okay. you look at the stuff that you do in terms of, I was talking about what it felt like to do stand up because you do. You see, you, you I've seen you perform stand up. You've had great shows. People love hearing your voice as a stand up. You've done a lot of telly and radio, right? For I mean, yeah. at any age, you said people were saying to you when you were starting out, you're doing all this stuff. But you did. You had a lot of success very early, very young. Yeah. And that's on screen and off screen. So not everybody's getting writing TV shows, appearing in TV shows. A lot of people are waiting 20 years to manage it. And then you also now, and you also do a lot of writing. So, so how does that, so that's, that's the kind of sweet spot of all the things everyone who does what we do needs to be able to do, right? So you can act, you can do comedy, you can write, you can perform. So where do you see, what do you see yourself as then? Like what what is, where do you feel most comfortable in all of that? Stand up, I would say, but, uh stand up and writing scripts like I do love writing scripts I love writing dialogue um also since becoming a writer uh because I write I've I've written a play and um I've just finished that and I already kind of theater or tv play theater play Mm -hmm. uh I'm really it's a Christmas play um really uh, I think it's coming out this year. I don't know. I handed it in anyway. I did my part of the deadline, and that's done. And like, um, I really, I really like theatre now, and I want to watch as much good theatre as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I'm definitely not afraid to call myself a writer anymore. I was at first when I, I mean, how I got the sitcom was someone had watched me do stand up comedy, and asked me whether I had any scripts. And, and I this said, was nowhere fast nowhere fast in Ireland and like I lied and said yeah I do and then like I wrote a script over like a weekend and handed it in and said this is the thing that I've been that I have and uh it it got it it took about a year and a half but it got made and I thought wow this is such a slog like that you know it took such a long time for it to get made now like I'm writing tv stuff and I've just got like a final rejection on this series proposal that I had it was uh, for a script and it's like something I really really love um, but it's just not going to happen and that is the way that TV works normally and I just didn't know that before because I was so green and because making the sitcom uh, it kind of gave me a false sense of how stuff works but the fact and, you could knock out a script in a weekend, I mean, that puts you in a pretty small minority. Do you do you find <laughs> that, is it the process that you find, do you find it easy? Because some people do, do, do you feel like, I think it's the um, letters to a young poet, whoever wrote that book and, and, and the whole premise being, you know, if you were in a prison cell and there was no light and there was nothing and all you had was writing, that would still be the most important thing to you. Do you feel like writing is absolutely kind of the essential part of what you do? Um, yeah, because no one's going to send you to prison. It's just hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> I like writing. Um, it takes me, it it takes me, it takes me longer than I intend, which is annoying. I think it was just because I wrote, I wrote the sitcom with my boyfriend. Yeah. So it was like between us two, we got it done. 
He stopped watching uh, Pointless and actually wrote something. Yeah, exactly. That was a lot exactly. of self-discipline. <laughs> and like, yeah, the sexual harassment in the workplace was terrible. But <laughs> I kid. Um, but like me and him, he used to do stand-up comedy. And we have this like, and I, we, I met him when he'd stopped. So um, he has a real kind of like eye for structure and like you the the emotional nib of everything and I really like funny writing and characters and like uh, what I loved about writing the sitcom was it was based a lot on my village and about village politics mm-hmm. and about it kind of was based loosely on a time that I it was it was a thing of this woman who was working in a radio station said the c word on a hot mic and then had to go move back to her village and she and tried- that's a real story is it well no it was kind of like it was kind of like that imagine like i think most of the stuff that i write is like imagine if this went differently so this you know? was somebody, so this was a young female person who'd gone off to Dublin making her fortune and then it had to come home. It was a hot shot in media. Yeah. yeah, work and uh, and also like the she she tried to commit suicide when she was a teenager. So she's moving back in with her mum, who's very scared that because she's had this knock in life that she and it was kind of like it it was based on my mum, the mum character was because because I had that breakdown when I was 13 and my mum was hyper aware that I was mentally ill that she would like often uh kind of she was just always worried I was going to kill myself especially because I was listening to Marcy all the time like she would open up the door of my bedroom really quick and they go oh, thank god like as if like she was Stevie expecting Wonder me Run. well yeah well no she was expecting me to be dead like she just thought is that what happened a- when you had the breakdown was that was was wishing was there a kind of wishing for suicide element to that is that why she was so scared of it yeah yeah I think it was just because I had such a like well basically what happened was I had this like break where I was like punching a jack of potato into the floor mm-hmm. and she was looking at me going what are you doing and I was like I actually don't know mm-hmm. and then so like a kind of psychotic episode yeah, yeah 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 and like so she she from then on was very like oh she was great like she drove me to different appointments and was very active in trying to get me to be better and stuff and was like you know I think she was just very worried that I was gonna that the rest of my life was I was going to be affected by it mm-hmm. and, uh, and she had you would back be. when you needed someone to oh 100% 100%, yeah. 100% 100% like she's just an absolute legend and she's brought up like four kids on her own my dad's great but you know like he moved back to England and he needed to because like Ireland was not his home. Like it was really not a nice place for him to live in. Like it mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, so Jesus, I've no animosity at all towards my dad. Like he he needed to do what he needed to do. And like, you, you know, I get like, it's, it's very, yeah, I got on very well with both my parents now, but I got on especially well with my mum back when I was a teenager. It was definitely us against the world kind of thing. And that's a sense you get in Nowhere Fast, isn't it? Because the key characters are women, right? So that oh, you, yeah. the, 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 the role you play, the sisters, the mum, that's what yeah. gets you into the, that. And you write them really beautifully. And I guess, did that feel like that doing the dialogue for those women? Was that was that a kind of natural place for you to go then? Because you grew up in a community of women uh, in, in rural Ireland. Oh my god, yeah. Like what I what I love is uh my mum has two sisters and a granny, and they're all all of the women hang out together, all of the women do everything together. Like um also the the two friend characters, 
I'm kind of loosely based on an amalgamation of my friends from my village. And, um, and it's that kind of thing of being around like one friend who is just mad and doesn't give a shit about the world. And it's just wants to set the world on fire. And that other friend who is like more cautious and, and, and also like I've four sisters all together. Like my dad is, uh, has a daughter over here and uh, there's all this kind of like community of women and being worried. And also there's this thing of like, when you're older, and you look at like your 14 year old sister and you go, oh, shit, I know what's coming up now. Yeah. And, it, you know, so you're just like you, you're just very aware of like passing on knowledge and looking after. Mm-hmm. And like my mum was like that. And uh, yeah, it's just it's I, I just found women highly interesting because men were so quiet, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in my village and my family. Like there's, you know, you wouldn't get much talk out of men. There's just so much interesting things that women talk about. And I think maybe it's because of like the other thing of like keeping your reputation clean within or what a reputation is. And um, in a village or in a family, you know, uh, there's this community within community within community. I come from a council estate, so that's its own community within a village, which is its own community in itself. And you're just like, you know, your family, it, it's just a, a universe inside. Well, it's like a galaxy inside a universe mm-hmm. and then it goes out and out more. And it's and a lot of it is like, you know, keeping keeping your reputation like that is a big thing in Irish uh, society. Is to- and everybody knows if you do or you don't write people, it's small enough people not really notice. How do you find that you moved to London not long before lockdown, right? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah. you're down the road from me, so you're in Camden. And how how yeah. is it? How is it living in London compared to living in rural Ireland? Uh, oh God, you've total freedom. Uh, it's amazing. No one to, gives a shit about your reputation or who. No you one are. gives a shit. Yeah, <laughs> and also like it's great to know that if you miss a bus, that isn't you in the house for the day because yeah, there's only like one true. bus a day. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was what um, it was like for me in Dorset. Yeah, I used to have to get like one bus to go to college, and if you missed it, and the bus took two and a quarter hours, I yes! went through every village, and I never oh, thought mate. that was weird. And now I'm like, wow, I was getting up at <laughs> six in the morning, and I still didn't get to college till nine. It's crazy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, I feel like uh, I live in a set of flats and I'm living here like three years and I know my downstairs neighbor as well. And uh, there's a thing of like you keep getting told about London that it's a very cold place. And, you know, I kept getting warned about that. And they also they were like the winter will be hard. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people with good advice and stuff, but it's actually like way better. Than I imagined. I, I, because it cost as much rent to live in Dublin as it does in London. It really was a no-brainer of like I needed to move, and also like I felt that I'd achieved all I could in Ireland, and I still, you know, I still wasn't going to make a living that I could get a mortgage or you know have mm-hmm. roots there, um, and I don't have. I don't have a family that will be able to leave me on if and when they die. So it's mm. a very, it's very freeing. I don't know. It's a, it's a, you know, I'm like in my thirties now and I'm like thinking about pensions and all this shit. And I'm just like, Oh, there's no inherited wealth that I can. And I'm not and they're like genuinely, I know people that are rich and I'm happy for them and people that have rich, it's nothing. I, I hate talk. It's, sometimes it's hard to talk about stuff because you don't want to seem like, you're uh bitching about stuff or anything like that but it's just like 
Yeah, you've uh, got to take care of yourself if no one else is going to do it for you. You've got to look after. And and it's also, yeah. I, I think, one of the hard things in what we do, and it sounds really cynical and a real wanker way to say it, but somehow we need to make money while we sleep, right? Because as performers, yeah. otherwise it's all on us. And the only way you can really do that is creating content writing or creating back catalogue of podcasts or shows. That's the only way we can make money apart from us hoofing around the world and getting on stage and television, right? Yeah, like my dad was self-employed and he was injured for like a few years and couldn't make any money. And we were incredibly poor. And it was just like I had parts of my life where like, you know, we didn't have a, like I'm just I'm just very aware that like being self-employed does not mean like it's just like I, I just, you know, when the, you know, when the phone was off or whatever, or we'd have like crispy pancakes for dinner. It was like, right, well, shit isn't going well for that at the moment and you just have to like yeah I've had that awareness since I was a child so that stays um, with you I think when you've lived with somebody having no money because it was all down to them as a a self-employed person I don't think you ever take what we do for granted and also people could change their mind right you can have all the tv shows in the world and the best comedy reviews in the world and suddenly no one wants you 18 months later and that's a real risk and I think the writing if you're writing also for panel shows writing play you've got a chance to try a lot of different things that aren't all about whether your face fits which is a kind of a relief in such a whimsical industry yeah and it's scary because I don't know like because I achieved stuff or whatever in Ireland and I just don't know what's around the corner for me now and it's so scary and it's just like I hoard food like I have cans and cans of food in my house like a nuclear I bunker I genuinely think it's I'm really like glad to know there is a nuclear bunker in Camden just <laughs> yeah, down the yeah. road from me so you keep you keep stashing babes I'm on the fourth floor as well so if there's flooding or anything like genuinely I am if the Regent's I'm Canal equipped. breaks its banks for the first time <laughs> in the history of the Regent's Canal <laughs> you're on this shit <laughs> yeah but uh yeah I just it just hasn't left me but also I don't have the it's weird I have all the anxiety about like oh you know um shit won't stay or whatever but I have none of the actual life skills either to prepare me for when it doesn't so I need to sort that out like paperwork everything like that that's quite I'm a motivating no factor with. then there's a lot to you're playing the stakes are high you're rolling the dice for survival <laughs> so I'd say <laughs> that's a good that's a real level what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? Ooh, what would I pick? I think I would, yeah. Uh, do you know what I would pick probably was um, years ago. Uh, so years ago, uh, right. So you, <laughs> so <laughs> I was doing comedy and I used to get like, um, I used to get weirdly abused on the street by people uh by men who would like because I'm fat and I wear like bright clothes um I think I think I think I don't know like how I think I based my whole identity on just wearing what I wanted to wear and kind of not really thinking about it because I grew up in a village people accepted me pretty quickly because it was I wasn't going to change or anything like that and it wasn't you know it was just like this is Alison or whatever. Then I moved to Dublin and I kind of noticed, I, I think I noticed once and then I kind of kept count of how many comments or whatever I'd get on the street. And like, it would just be like men 
coming up to me and going like, oh, will you shag my mate? And it would be their mate laughing and it would be like hilarious to them, the concept of me and that person having sex. And I would go, ha ha, you know, and try and move on because like a lot of my defense mechanisms come from telling jokes or just laughing or getting along mm-hmm. with stuff. And then like uh, one day, like these, I was going to like a gig and these kids put chewing gum in my hair and I was just crying and I felt bad. And I wrote this article about it and it was, like How I was, old were you when that happened? Ooh, let's see, because I'll find the article. It, the article is called Why Can't All Lads Be Sound Like Hoes Here? Will you send me the link to that so we can put it in the show notes? I will, yeah. I will. And it was just a kind of jokey, because I, I just started to write articles mm-hmm. for like uh, colleges and stuff, and it was just a thing that I uh, enjoyed. And this came out, in 2017 so Mm -hmm. about like five years ago Mm -hmm. and it went like it went viral in Ireland as in I I wasn't like big I wasn't on the telly or anything like that but I was asked to go on it was so weird that week it was so so weird because I the article is not about fat acceptance or anything like that it was Mm -hmm. just about I think it's weird that people approach me in this way Mm -hmm. why do they feel that they have the right to do this Mm -hmm. and it was uh like I was I was trying to like be funny about it and uh like I was asked to go on Irish radio I was asked to go on an Irish tv show and it's so odd this person because I used to be like a radio researcher and I briefly worked like what like as a runner for tv because you would just do that working in Dublin Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh so someone was a runner and asking me could I go on this show uh this politics show where they were going to get the minister of health on and there was going to be a uh, talk about tax on sugar and they wanted me to talk about my article Mm -hmm. in relation to the tax on sugar and I was like there was nothing in my article about sugar and the minister for health was going to be there and it just and they would not stop ringing me all week about it and I found it so weird um and and then I found like there was the article kind of went viral in Ireland and then people started talking about on message boards and then there was a debate about whether I was glorifying obesity it was very very it was very odd for a week because it was just it just felt like everyone was talking about it mm-hmm. and it just it just felt very very odd and in the article I refer to a time where I was doing a gig and a gig is a place where I feel most safe and most uh, comfortable probably mm-hmm. and this person stood up in the middle of a crowd and it was during like it was a music festival gig but not the nice music festival that we would do Cali mm-hmm. together it was a it was a festival where like teenagers went to and they all went into this tent to like get out of the rain and it was just mm-hmm. it was just like you would see people go on and they weren't getting any laughs and it was just horrible right More like a bad school disco Oh, just one of those things where you knew, Kelly, you were going like, okay, I've done two minutes, so I'm going to keep going. Yeah, Yeah, 18 to go. So I did this gig and I was, and it was raining. The comedy gods had smiled at me. People are coming in. I kind of had, I definitely had more control over it than I thought I was going to. Mm -hmm. I was feeling like I was feeling good. And this man stood up and then he was like, I would ride you. And then he was like, miming having sex with me and he thought this was hilarious um and just something inside me snapped because I think I was just I think it's because I just began to notice how often this was happening mm-hmm. to me so I started that and it's not like this is not a, a a comedy thing that I would recommend but it worked for me at the time mm-hmm. 
But I was going, oh, so that's what you would do to children. And then people are looking at him. And then I got everyone to, to chant at him, pedophile, until he left the tent. So that isn't particularly funny. But he had left and it was just very odd to see like 300 people chant pedophile at someone. Mm-hmm. And I destroyed, I'd, I'd said other stuff. I just like, I just unleashed everything that I never did to other people on the street because I think there's this thing of like, if someone approaches you on the street and makes fun of your appearance, you're kind of like a bit, uh, you're a bit unguarded, unguarded, I would say, because like if they're willing to, you know, step out of the social norm and, you know, tell you that you're ugly Mm -hmm. then obviously there's no why wouldn't they hit you like I've been hit by other people before so I've always come out being a bit afraid but because I was on stage I wasn't afraid because I knew he couldn't and I knew that my status was higher than him Mm -hmm. and like I felt I just I can't even remember half the stuff I said to him but everyone was laughing at him and they were laughing and he I could see he looked he felt hurt he felt bad well the he bully felt, became bullied I guess well right? he felt like yeah. how he wanted me to feel yeah and then he had to leave and they were chanting at him pedophile until he left and it's just very weird looking at people pass by the tent and just looking at 300 people chant pedophile as if they're going like, what kind of band is on in there? But <laughs> How shit is this festival? But that that for me, like, I think I and when I did the article, people were debating about it. But mostly I got was was people being like, this shouldn't happen to you. That wasn't, you know, this is not a normal thing. And I think I'd accepted abuse as like a normal thing. And then you bit uh, back. Yeah, I bit back. And then like it didn't happen as much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's my namaste thing. Is that I'm sorry you had to go through that though. Fucking hell. That is that's a hard one, namaste motherfucking moment, I think. <laughs> um, it is, it is, it's hard one. And what's yeah. your um what's your favorite joke? Oh, my favorite joke. Uh yeah, this is a this is a I think this is my favorite joke is in you know coming to America. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the film, coming to America is my favorite comedy film, and uh, I had to do a lecture on it once <laughs> in the Irish Film Institute where they asked me to pick my favorite funny film and I picked it and then like I gave I gave a talk after and asked you know for people's opinions on it and one guy put up his hand he's like that's the worst film I've ever seen in my life and I was like it's incredible and he's like he said like it was just a bunch of sketches thrown together and I'm like yes and who can you know it's great I think it's a great film and at the end of the film Eddie Murphy's dressed as like the the white Jewish guy and he's going like um waiter taste the soup and the waiter goes what is there like uh is it too hot too cold just taste the soup was it too salty too peppery just taste the goddamn soup <laughs> okay okay i'll taste the soup i'll taste the soup where's the spoon aha says the mom and that just killed me when i was six years old and it still kills me now and it was the only vhs i was allowed to watch when i was a kid <laughs> that belonged to my uncle uh because there was no kids video so i just watched that and uh also total recall <laughs> Those were, people watch rosie and jim and, <laughs> and uh teddy tubbies when they were a kid i watched a free titted woman and arnold schwarzenegger with eyes bulge out <laughs> we'll put a link for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure and i agree with you not just sketches stitched together by any chance no and what's... <laughs> yeah it's brilliant. and if you could give one bit of life advice to anyone listening Alison what would it be floss your teeth namaste motherfuckers
some spittle. Every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guests that I'm going to do. And this week, it's very simple to explain, a little bit harder to do. I've decided to get in touch with a few school friends from the community where I grew up, which is Shaftesbury in Dorset. I am friends with a few of them on Facebook, but I don't, as lots of us, actually bother to ever get in touch with them. So my plan is to actually arrange to meet up with a couple of my old pals from Shaftesbury Upper School uh, and actually to, yeah, to see them when I'm next down in Dorset. I've got no excuse because my son's uh, a zookeeper, as you know, down in Devon. So I am often passing through the county of Dorset. So Alison, if I end up marrying my childhood sweetheart, hello, Nick Young, you've got a seat at the top table. So that's it for this episode. We will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be talking to writer, comedian, novelist and Bollywood screenwriter, Anavab Powell. My threshold in the 24-hour day with parents is about 20 minutes before I need to leave somewhere so I don't kill anyone. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people.